Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. Hello, church. We are at the end of a 10-week look at the Kingdom Manifesto, which is usually called the Sermon on the Mount. And I hope that it has made the Sermon on the Mount more meaningful, um, more personal, and that perhaps we've all cleaned some glasses from time to time and, and decided to take a different new look at some things in our lives and our attitudes. Kings have jobs to do. And again, king is a very foreign concept to us, but anything other than that type of rule was very uncommon and it was unheard of. So we have to go back in our mind and say, all right, what is Jesus offering? Well, we've seen a lot of that, but in chapter seven, we also get warnings. Starting out in verse 15, watch for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly. They are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you shall know them. Kingdom has come, uh, the king has come to the part of the manifesto where he needs to warn us about those who will try to cash in on his name, or they will try to bend the kingdom to benefit them rather than their king. The fact is, wherever there is truth, wherever there is beauty, wherever there is appetite, there will be people ready to twist it, pervert it, redefine it, and make money off of it, period. Whether it is that God made us male and female, male and female created he, them, and now you can call yourself a whole variety of things, and there is a whole industry that will protect you, that will even cut on you or change you with chemicals because it benefits them. It's not about you. It's always about those who will benefit. The qui bono of any crime. Who benefits? Look for who benefits. Well, in religion, we've seen that as well. We, we've seen people take what is beautiful and pure and true and blow up people, shoot people, rob older people of their social security. They will find easy marks and then suck them dry and it, all, it was supposed to be beautiful think about what we've um, what we've done with the internet the internet's one of the greatest gifts to mankind but look as soon as it's made what starts flooding in again it is dangerous out there but very interesting by the way Jesus never paints a picture of fear out there and then says so huddle down behind these walls in fact, he tells the apostles, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. 
gates are not defend uh, are not offensive. In other words, we don't live behind our gates. We're going to go take their gates. Now, how do you do that? Well, it would be so much easier to do that with high power weaponry. But we're given love, service, and self-sacrifice as a way to change the world. One person at a time. And people will say, but that will take forever. Well, good news. Uh, God's in charge of time. Second thing to think about is, how have those other ways been working out? I don't think they've worked out well. One of the things we have to do here, though, is talk about the word false. Because he warns against false teachers that'll get in among us and redefine, reclassify, twist the truth into something ugly, beautiful, into something dangerous. So what are, how are we going to do? Uh, all the lessons I heard growing up on this passage, and by the way, false teachers were the star of many sermons when I grew up, or the subject of false teachers. All the lessons I heard on this passage and warned us about false prophets, meaning they teach something different than we teach about certain passages. Therefore, they are false. That means that they're not teaching Jesus. In fact, it was almost a catechism. Why does this denomination do that? Well, they don't read their Bibles and they don't follow Jesus. Well, why does this denomination do this? Well, they don't love Jesus and don't read their Bible. It was a, almost a catechismic response. But the fact is, that's not what the word false mean, meant to them. And we need to look and see what it did mean to them. Understand this. This is not a waffling. This is not a, well, we're going to water down Christianity. No, this is just going to be a blunt look at words. Because words have different meanings at different times in history. And words can have meanings that differ geographically from one place to the other. I talked to a couple of people this week about the differences between British English, which is English, because English is British, and Merkin. Um, or the version of English that has been created here. And, and, it, and it was all done in jest and a whole lot of fun, but there are quite a lot of differences there. Uh, I believe it may have been Churchill, I actually didn't look this up, that said that we are two nations divided by a common language. Well, words change. Think about this. Awful. What does awful mean to you? Well, for most of the history of the English language, awful meant... Something very positive, full of awe. And we would talk about the awful God we have, the awful presence of God, but it meant you're full of awe. It, there's a correct, it then became awful as in bad, and then a corrective showed up in the 1800s. A word was invented in the 1800s to try to rescue it. We'd never had the word before, but it was called awesome. And they created that word to try to save the word awful from its negative connotation. How about fantastic? Somebody go, well, we won the game. We'll go fantastic. Well, for most of the history of the English language, that would mean you liar. Because fantastic meant fantasy, fanciful. You just made that up. That is not correct. That does not exist. It is fantastic. It's a fantasy. Well, now... It means yay you, or it means it was a good thing. Cute. The word cute 
was a shortened version of the word acute to the point where until the last couple hundred years there was even an apostrophe before the C to show indicate a missing letter and what did it mean it meant sharp and to the point only much later did it evolve into something about the way I look you look the way you look sorry flirt flirt used to mean a quick movement such as punching somebody or drawing a sword in plays of the day back in Shakespeare's day you will hear people you know did you flirt with me which meant did you draw sword on me that's so different now than it was then so uh, poets were the ones who changed this they used it in a poetic license which you can't get down at the driver's department it's a it's a it's an idea but a poet a poetic license to make it a quick a quick look to flirt at someone myriad myriad we think well that means an extremely large number of things do you know that most of english history it meant an actual number 10,000 myriad meant 10,000 and it's had its own symbol in mathematics which is a circle with four um, dashes horizontal lines inside of it it's fallen by the wayside it's not used anymore how about fathom fathom used to mean to hug today we'll say I can't fathom that well it doesn't mean you can't hug it what it means is you can't metaphorically get your arms around that you can't get your head around that you see I can do this all day and most of the week I, I'm a student of language and I like the way words work and how they used to work and how they morphed during today. If you'd like to read more about that, by the way, Bill Bryson's two amazing books, Made in America and Mother Tongue, are, are fun. And if you're thinking, how, how is a nonfiction fun, uh, rather, book on language fun, you've not read Bill Bryson. He'll make you laugh out loud and you'll learn something too. Middle Tennessee has its own little things. Uh, East Tennessee is a linguistic bubble and they have all kinds, they'll tell you I don't care to, which means sure, I'll do that. It doesn't mean that anywhere else on the planet. So we have to know what does Jesus mean by false? And here's the good news. You don't really have to wonder much because the Bible defines false teachers in very great detail in a concentrated passage in 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, the whole chapter. Let me just read verses 1 through 3, and then I'm going to skip down 10 through 20, even though I'd like to read the whole chapter. All right? But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false uh, teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. By the way, the word heresy does not mean an untruth or a doctrine which is not orthodox. The word heresy in Peter's time meant a teaching that will divide you, that will split you. Even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves, many will follow their depraved conduct. Remember that? And will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. 
Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. Skipping down to verse 10, this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, they're not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They're like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. By the way, just stop right there. There was a gentleman in my youth who was known for teaching about love and grace in our religious tribe. And he was constantly called a false teacher. He doesn't sound like an unreasoning animal born only to be caught and destroyed. Let's figure out what false meant to them. Moving on, verse 13 and forward. They'll be paid back with harm for the harm they've, they've done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. Wait, the word false might mean something different. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you, with eyes full of adultery. They never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people who are slaves to whatever has mastered them, if they've escaped the corruption of this world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and are again entangled into it and are overcome, they are worse off than at the beginning. And it goes on to talk about dogs returning to their vomit and a sow to wallowing in the mire. That's pretty ugly stuff, isn't it? This isn't talking about somebody who disagrees with you on music, on church organization, on the interpretation of scripture. This isn't talking about somebody who is, isn't quite where you are on the nature of the Trinity. No, not at all. Let's take a list. Let's look at a list here. And from elsewhere in the New Testament, defining false teachers. They introduce destructive heresies denying the sovereign Lord. They are greedy and make up stories to exploit people. They despise authority. They're bold and anger, uh, arrogant, cele- uh, slandering even celestial beings. They are like brute beasts in their behavior. They carouse sexually immoral in public, reveling in pleasures, eyes full of adultery, seducing the unstable. They are experts in greed, willing to bless or curse for money, always making promises, but delivering nothing, and appeal to the lust of people, enticing them and making them slaves of depravity. Wow. Wow. That's what false teachers meant. When Jesus talked about it. Not somebody who disagrees with you. And by the way we can prove this. Because there was a council. In the book of Acts. Where the Christians were split. 
on how Jewish they needed to be and which Jewish laws they needed to keep. And so they came to Jerusalem for the council to, uh, of, of elders and um, apostles there, all the gathering to, to speak and decide what was right. And when they came in, the council didn't and told them just leave each other alone. Stay unspotted from the world. Don't act like pagans. In other words, didn't try to settle a disagreement because it wasn't important to them. Both sides were teaching Jesus. That's all that they cared about. And we divide over, it seems, almost everything, constantly, looking at our, our interpretation of Scripture and then pointing to someone else and calling them false. No. False teachers have a... Um, have a series of habits in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 6. The Spirit says, clearly says, that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry. They order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it was received with thanksgiving because it's consecrated by the word of God in prayer. And skipping over now to chapter 6 and verses 4 through 6. It, there's so much, I want to read more, but always time. Speaking of false teachers. They are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies. If you are in a church around people and all they can do is talk about controversies and problems and who's right. Or if you're at a dinner table that does that with anybody, politics, church, whatever, that's a problem. God does not want us to be focused on controversies. At all. He wants us to focus on Jesus. And that's very different than what some people might think. Anyway. And quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions. Constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth. And who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. It should be plain now. That false meant something different. Think of a Jim Jones who took a church step at a time into, well, we all know how it ended with mass suicide in South America, Central America, but it started, sorry, that is South America, it started with. Listen to me, I know the secret behind these passages. Listen to me, listen to me. And ended up with sex, greed, despicable behavior, and murder. Think of David Koresh. I could name a whole lot of cult leaders or even TV preachers who were found to be corrupt, enriching themselves, where the even, I can remember not that long ago in America, where it was revealed that one TV preacher, very popular at the time, uh, had their dog had an air-conditioned house. 
with, with several rooms and that they only traveled by limousine and private jet and while at the same time crying for people to give money or their ministry will shut down. The false preachers are still here, but they're not the people that disagree with you. They're not the people who disagree with you on how do we deal with the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament and, and find a way to reconcile the picture of Jesus as God with some of the things said in the Hebrew scriptures. We're going to have disagreements about that, but none of us are false unless we're trying to inject sex, seduction, greed, division, and that's not what's going on. It's just people who love Jesus who aren't on the same page here. That's all. We need to rethink our words, don't we? We need to be careful. No wonder Jesus, our king, tells us in this kingdom manifesto, just let your yes be yes and your no by no. If you go much farther from that, it's going to be from the evil one. Well, he's right again. False meant that their heart was false. Their motivations were false. They were in this for the money, the control, the sex. Uh, the only corrective to the lives of these is, is to check the lives of these people and see what kind of fruit they've borne. Now, we'll look at that. That's kind of important. 7, 16 through 20. We saw this. Do you pick grapes from thorn bushes, figs from thistles? All right. What is, what's in their path? Look behind them. Do you see brokenness, pain, misery, uh, sin, criminality? Or what do you see there? What is in their fruit? Now, here's where we have to ask the question. Is this a contradiction to the way this chapter started out? Judge not that you be not judged. For with whatever judgment you judge, the same will be measured back and judge you. Well, no. We're not told to condemn false teachers. We're just told to notice them. We're not told to name and shame them. We're not told to make websites or blogs or go on Twitter and call them out. We're not called to do any of that. We're just merely told to check what they leave behind them in their wake. Notice their direction and see if you really want to go that direction. I learned early on, to check the direction. And I've told the story of getting on the wrong bus many times. So I'm not going to retell it here. But I can remember. I've always had a great fascination with cars. Now I have um, you know, a little SUV. And a lot of miles on it. Because of welcome home tours. But I enjoy that. And I, but I still get motor trend and car and driver. And I still look at the car. I read about the cars. I like the cars. I'm not going to. I'm in the wrong business to ever afford most of those cars, and, and, but that's fine. I'm fascinated by them. Here's the point. In high school, the car guys were the cool guys. The car guys were too cool to pay attention to school. They were too cool to think that math mattered, science mattered, English mattered. Some of them would even, and this is going to be very hard for those of you under 40, they would even have cigarettes rolled up in a shirt sleeve. And certain times of the school day would be out in the quad or the area smoking with the teachers. Because they did back then. If you ever wanted to see concentrated smoke, you just went by the teacher's lounge. Things have changed. 
And I'm not complaining about that. But you saw the cool guys. And they were the rebels. And they raced their cars. And they got in trouble with the police. It didn't take me long to realize if I want to be a cool car guy, I'm going to end up in a place where I'll never be able to afford a cool car. Because I won't be able to get a job that'll pay for a cool car. And I'll have to do my best with what I can find somewhere. We've all, been, we've all been there where we're driving and we're passed by something loud and rattling. And my thing I often say to my wife is, that's three of the best cars that guy has ever owned. <clears throat> and by the way, good for you. If you're putting it together and it gets you to work and back, you know, kudos to you. But every bus has a destination and every attitude does too. What is the attitude and the bus? That that minister, that preacher, that politician is leading. Where does it go to? But also look back, what did it leave behind them? Destruction? Brokenness? Well, then don't jump on that bus. Don't follow that person. I don't know why this is controversial, but I'm going to say it anyway. Do not measure a politician by their promises. Measure them by what they already have done. And if they say, well, I would have done it, but I had all sorts of opposition, ask them why they think they won't have opposition this time. Instead, open our eyes and notice things. I won't go into details, but I came under sustained attack years ago. And I was asked if I wanted to come to a meeting and talk about it. And I said, no. And that really flabbergasted, which is a great American word they borrowed from overseas. But if your flabber gets gasted, I'm assuming that's a pretty serious event. <clears throat> so they were flabbergasted. And they said, well, why wouldn't you want to? And I said, because what happens is somebody will go, he is this. And I'll say, I am that. And you get to sit around and look at that. No, the evidence is already there. Go look at my life. Go look at who I left behind. You know, Al May very sweetly once in a communion devotional uh, mentioned that some preachers and wives are not really on the same page, but he, he caught me getting up to go preach and leaning down and kissing my wife first. Well, I wasn't aware that was quite so rare, and I keep going, have you seen her? So I, um, <laughs> have I been faithful to my wife? Have I been faithful to my children? Are my children in good good places are my grandkids in good places I just said no take look at my life I will not say a word in my defense I would just say go examine my life that's all I can do well that sounds like bragging it really isn't I'm very open about my sins my doubts my struggles that said the one time that I was fired in my life it was a gift from God that every single church I have ever worked with in this country and abroad reached out to us with flowers, cards, monies, calls, personal visits, every single one. And I was able to look back at my life and say, it's been good. Not every decision was good. Not every action was good. But the whole of my life left a lot of good fruit. Now this sounds again like bragging. I would ask you to look at 2 Corinthians 11. Paul had to do that too when he came under fire, and he felt as awkward about it as I do now. By the way, many of you listeners worldwide started listening about then, or had been listening before then, and you stayed, 
because you saw what I left behind and what you've left behind because you focus on Christ too. Paul had a lot in his life, a lot he wasn't proud of. And he talked openly about that he sinned. I I love Romans 7. Absolutely adore it. Because then I can look at Paul and go, I'm not alone. You know, what I said I wouldn't do, I end up doing. What I said I will do, I don't do. Oh, miserable man that I am, who will save me from? And then he writes Romans 8. If he just stopped Romans at chapter 7, we'd all line up with the lemmings and jump off the cliff. Which they actually don't do. That was staged by Disney for a movie. They don't do that. Anyway, back to... I don't know why I have to bring science and fact into this. Such a good story. I used to think animals were friends because there was music when they met. So, how do we avoid veering off the road and following our own appetites and greed and then stamp the Jesus emperor on it? How do we do that? Put the king in charge of everything. The money, your relationships, whatever. Put the king in charge. Tell his story. Listen to his words. Imitate him. Paul said something I don't think I'll ever be comfortable enough to say. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. And I know exactly what he meant. He was not trying to elevate himself. But I always say, don't follow me. You can examine me and you can examine what I've done. And see all the bads and the goods and what fruit was left behind. But follow Jesus because I just don't think I'm a safe person. Follow Jesus. Put Jesus there. That's a message of this last part of the chapter, which Barb read for us so well today. It's best known for the children's song about it. The wise men build his house upon the rock. The king is warning us in this passage. Check where you're standing. Archimedes, when he was developing the principles of simple machines, your lever, uh, then you've got, um, you've got the focal point of it, and he was talking about you've got the fulcrum, you've got the lever. He said, if I, you know, if I have a lever long enough and a place to stand, I can move the world. And of course, he wasn't thinking that he'd get out in space. His point was about how you can multiply the force of a human being by a simple tool. Well, I love that phrase, but I always like to say, to focus on a place to stand. Are you on a safe place to stand? Make sure you're on this solid rock. And what is that rock? Is it the sum total of a denomination's interpretation of the whole of scripture? By the way, whenever I ask people who are of a completely different thought and pattern and they like to attack other denominations and they'll say, we have to do this. And I'll say, all right, what are you standing? What's your foundation? They will often say, Jesus. But then you start pushing them a bit and you'll find out their foundation is their interpretation of scripture. Well, Jesus said all the law and the prophets can be summed up, Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. Love God and love your neighbors yourself. Stand there. I have strong opinions about the Trinity. They're probably the same as yours, frankly. So I'm sure I'm heterodox on some things, but I'm pretty orthodox on that stuff. I have strong opinions about a lot of things, but those aren't what judges us. And we are not to judge each other. Instead, look and see what people do and see if they look like Jesus. We stand on Jesus. Cool. How do you know that? 
many, when you ask that question, many will start listing doctrines and then you know they're standing on shaky ground. If they say, I know that because I try to love people as he loves me. Okay. And by the way, you want some homework? Here's some tough homework. Be as patient with people as you want God to be with you. Be as kind to people as you want God to be to you. Is that enough to keep you busy? I think that's enough to keep you busy. I don't think I want to put anything else out there. I will do a last passage from Paul since I brought him up. I've had people say before, are you trying to compare yourself to Paul? No, no. And by the way, he wouldn't compare himself to me either. You know why? Both Paul and I are so bad sinners, we needed the Son of God to die to save us. So we focus on Christ. Listen to what he focuses on. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you take your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. All right, here it is. Here's where we stand. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all he appeared to me also as of one abnormally born. Well wait. Where's all the other doctrines? He doesn't. He said, that's my gospel. That should keep you busy. Jesus is real. Jesus is king. Jesus is our God. If we focus on our king, we will live our lives marked by love, mercy, forgiveness, and acceptance. And if I may be so bold, who could ask for more than that? What else do you want but that?